So Corey, today we're got a little bit different topic than what we've historically had. Yes, we and do. I'd love for you to kind of fill us in on, on where we're going and what brought us to have this topic today. Right. So part of the shift we've made with Passionately Married mm-hmm. is to expand into uh, a wider range of topics that people that within we face. The, within the marriage relationship. Right, that, that we face as being human and as mm-hmm. we face being married to humans and mm-hmm. having humans. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, I want to move at times beyond the idea that marriage and life will always be good or get better, that sometimes we want to really look at, there are seasons of pain and suffering in some very intense ways mm-hmm. in our lives and in our marriages, whether it's expected or unexpected. And it's oftentimes during these times that the platitudes just don't work. So we need to have some serious conversations. Okay. And so uh, we want, I want to try to create times like this one where we have a better language that we can recognize uh, we're capable of living in uncertain times with people alongside us. And so today we're going to talk a little more about the scary world uh, that impacts many marriages and families, actually, mm-hmm. which that's the world of depression, suicidal thoughts, and the fear surrounding the uncertainty that happens during these phases during these moments, during these times. Gotcha. So how can I be alongside a spouse that might be in that situation? Right. So this is how you can show up for other people, what to say, what to do, and what it feels like walking alongside other people when they're in these dark and lonely times. Okay. And so um, this is a delicate path that our guest today knows all too well. Mm -hmm. She's actually a suicidologist, um, which is a real term. Okay. And that is what her work is devoted towards, both on the side of the person that's struggling with it, and then those alongside them. She, she kind of comes at it from both sides. So it's Dr. Stacy Stacy Friedenthal, who's a licensed uh, social worker. Mm-hmm. And she has a couple of books. Uh, the one we're going to be talking about is Loving Someone with Suicidal Thoughts. And that's where our conversation goes today. Because okay. this topic, and that's the way kind of we wanted, we wanted to start this one different. Mm-hmm. Because this topic may not impact every you know a lot of people in the nation. But it will impact some, but for sure, the topics and the manner in which we cover this is applicable to all of us. Absolutely, it is. And so in the extended content today, um, she and I put our clinician hats on a little bit and look at this whole framework again through a a little more professional lens, uh, because frankly, this is not stuff that uh, in a lot of the schooling out there for therapists, surprisingly, they don't go as deep as she does. So a lot of therapists were not prepared for this Interesting. in, okay. in our field. And so we, we kind of talk about my experience with the topic and training and her experience. And then also bring it into this is how it applies to us all. Okay. So that's what's coming up today on today's show. Well, I can speak for you and I, Pam. I don't know if I'll be able to speak to other people that listen in the nation. But, you know, you and I, we always have all kinds of time on our hands for dates. Um, Sarcasm included here. We have a schedule that's just totally free and flexible (laughs) that we get to constantly just whenever we want to go do these three, four hour, five hour long dates. Sarcasm is not becoming. Oh, well, that's awesome. <laughs> well, so maybe we are like a lot of the people in the nation too, in the sense that uh, it's it's sometimes a real struggle to figure out how can we find time uh, just to steal it with each other, and then when we do that, what could we do? 
right? Because sometimes it's just, well, let's just watch a movie or we could just play a game. Or Yeah, coming up with a fun, adventurous idea is not always quick to the mind. Right. We all have our go-tos, but our, our sponsor today is one that allows us to expand our go-tos. Mm-hmm. With Our friends at the Adventure Challenge have come up with the 30-minute dates, the mini dates for couples edition that you grab a card and you scratch it off and it gives you the framework and the environment to enter into this date that most of them don't cause cost any money. They just set the time and you can go longer than you, if you want to, I mean, it's kind of aimed for about 30 minutes, mm-hmm. but if it's going well, by all means keep going because it's a great way to connect and it's a great way to enhance a little bit of adventure into your relationship and just make it all the more variety and novel. Mm-hmm. So go to adventurechallenge.com, use our code PM20 and you get 20% off your entire order when you use our code PM20. And again, that's the adventurechallenge.com. Jump into the 30 new scratch-off adventures and just have a blast because they are helping create a lot more adventure and we're so grateful for them. This spring, I've decided to finally stop wearing uncomfortable bras and shapewear. And I can thank Honey Love, who's supporting today's episode and my decision. Honey Love has revolutionized the shapewear and bra game so you no longer have to feel like you're suffocating while wearing effective shapewear or that uncomfortable underwire that, you know, without sacrificing the support that the ladies need. I hate uncomfortable underwires, baby. (laughs) You'll immediately feel and see the difference. Their products are so comfortable and you won't want to take it off. You know that, that feeling when you get home from a long day and immediately want to take off your bra? Oh, totally know it. Corey knows it. With Honey Love, you'll never experience that again. Their bras are so comfortable, you'll forget that you're wearing them. But it doesn't stop there. Their best-selling Superpower Shore is the go-to. It has targeted compression technology that distinguishes between areas where you want more support and areas where you need less compression. It's designed to work with your body, not against it. For a limited time only, you can get Honey Love on sale. Get 20% off your order with the code PASSION at HoneyLove.com. Support our show and check them out at HoneyLove.com and use the code PASSION. Joining me today is Dr. Stacy Friedenthal, and you've got a focus that's not something as prominent uh, <laughs> that I've come across, uh, and so I am supremely intrigued with where this conversation can go because this is also not a topic that would commonly be talked about uh, in a lot of podcasts necessarily uh, say the ones that were for professionals or people in the mental health field Uh, but Stacy is a you call yourself a suicidologist and how did you land here because your book uh, that I've seen is the loving someone with suicidal thoughts. And so it's, it is a definite need because it is, it is prominent and we, we come, we will come across it, uh, potentially in, in our lives. But how did you land here in this particular focus? Sure. Sure. It's a great question. And first let me say suicidologist is a real word, even though not everybody acknowledges it, but it, it's somebody who studies or pra- specializes their practice on um, um, suicide prevention. Mm-hmm. So my path to specializing in suicidology 
there, there are really two paths, the professional and the personal. And the professional is that my first foray into clinical work was even before I got my master's degree in social work. And that was volunteering at a suicide hotline in Dallas. And then after that, I got another, that was volunteer. And then I got, during my graduate program, I worked as a job at a counseling center's 24 hour line. Okay. And then thereafter, just every clinical job I had was in some kind of emergency setting where suicide, suicidality um, was a pressing issue for many people. And then personally, I lost a friend to suicide when I was young. I myself had suicidal thoughts when I was young and well into my 20s. Mm-hmm. I made a suicide. I made a couple suicide attempts. So, um, so I've had a personal interest in the topic as well. Okay, which is which that's you know I keep coming across this, and you probably do too. Uh, that we we wind up with things that we've overcome or we're battling, or you know that we kind of if we. When we can pivot it, you know, building from Viktor Frankl's work in a lot of ways, if I can, if I can shift it to where, how do I make meaning out of my struggle, uh, my bent, my path? Sometimes I can go beyond it and make and help other people, which is what you what you do. And so, particularly, I want to I want to spend the time in the first part of our of our conversation today, Stacey, on on the idea of helping people that like when you have. It, it, a part of your family, a part of your world, because this this is a conversation. T- tell me if I'm off on this, because obviously being trained in the field as well as a marriage family therapist, um, as as well, um, when you when you do the training, I've, you you will spend some time being introduced to how do you help somebody, a, a client that's got suicidal ideation tendencies, uh, attempts, etc. Um, but when you hear it in the just out in the common vernacular among people. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if a lot of people know how to react to it. There's a lot of fear. And mm-hmm. and I will say, ideally in training therapists are taught how to work with somebody who has suicidal thoughts. Good distinction. Ideally. Good distinction. Yeah. Yes. I mean, there's, there's research. And in fact, I conducted a study, but it was quite a few years ago that most mental health professionals receive very little training in working with individuals who have suicidal thoughts. And a lot of the challenges with professionals mirror those among the general population. And that is that it's a scary topic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of myths that people have about if I bring up suicide, then it'll give the person the idea or I might cause them to kill themselves or, you know, I might make things worse. Mm -hmm. And, and those are really big fears. You know, it's, it's terrible to have somebody die by suicide. Mm -hmm. And, and so just to get ahead of it, uh, you're talking about that one right there in particular is a myth that if I bring it up, it, it will implant the thought. Yes. In fact, I have a post on my website and the title is something like, are you scared of planning the thought of suicide? And there's been quite a bit of research in recent years where they've looked at, um, and, and in some ingenious ways, they've looked at does asking about suicidal thoughts do harm to the person who's being asked? And consistently, the answer is no. Okay. Um, there are some people, there's a very small portion of people who say it upset them a little bit, mm-hmm. but it passed mm-hmm. very quickly. 
And, you know, for, for if somebody gets upset a little bit about being asked about suicidal thoughts, that's a small price to pay for a big reward of potentially finding out that someone is having suicidal thoughts and right. needs help. Right. Okay. And so that then leads us straight into the conversation I think we need to have if we're talking about um, loving and interacting with somebody that that either you know or there's signs that point towards or there's something that's shifted. And so what are, from, from your experience and your training and your, and your take, what are the signs that um, we need to be aware of as far as our relationship to people that this could be um, a, a reality that we need, that we're going to face. Yeah. There's different things to be on the lookout for, but I also want to give the caveat that some people hide very well that they have suicidal thoughts. Correct. And, and that's because, I mean, you know, there's many different reasons, but the ones that come up most frequently that I hear about are, I don't want the person to freak out. Mm-hmm. I don't want them to call the police. I don't want to burden them with worrying about me. I don't want them to judge me, you know, so there's all these different reasons people hide. And so about half of people actively um, withhold information about their suicidal thoughts, even to therapists, which is sobering as a therapist. Yes, it is. (laughs) And um, so, so the things to look out for though, you know, there are often clues as well. And even when somebody's hiding, these clues can kind of leak, Mm -hmm. you know, they can slip out without the person realizing. So the obvious ones, you know, are the ones that you hear about a lot, like somebody appears depressed, somebody's gone through a major loss and is isolating or, or, you know, they're talking about death, you know, they're Mm -hmm. saying things like, I wish I were dead, or what's the purpose of living and then of course if they say i'm having thoughts of killing myself then that's the biggest clearest sign of all but there also can be subtle things to look out for and and one that i've found is jokes okay people people will i know i don't know if you ever saw this um about anthony bourdain but he before in the years before he died by suicide he constantly joked about it i did not i was not aware of that yeah, somebody compiled a list of about 30 different occasions where on air he made a joke about suicide. And then, of course, that tells you that there were probably many other times, too, that either weren't on air or this person didn't uh, find because there's such voluminous recordings of him. Mm-hmm. Um, but but he would say things like, if I have a bad cheeseburger in the airport, I'm going to kill myself. And okay. then... At various times, he would get more specific and say how he would kill himself. Okay. And then at some point, he even started talking about where. Okay. And as it happened, he Mm -hmm. fulfilled those harbingers. Um, And just to to clarify, just for the sake of the audience, um, because I think it's important that that we point this out, that we're talking, there's... Tell me if I'm off on this. This is where I want you uh, with your training to help fill in my gaps that if I've got some on it too. Of, sure. Um, this is where what I believe in this and what I've been taught in this and look out for in this is the escalation of it is one of the major signs that where you're talking about, okay, you're joking about it or it's mentioned, 
That's that's something. That's a flag. That's a that's a that's good data to have. But then if they start adding in um, a little bit more detail on the plan, or and then they add, they add in the time or the how, and all of those are escalating signs. Definitely, the more specific the information is, the more extensive the information is, the more worried you know we should mm-hmm. be. And not everybody does that. Well, absolutely. And I, I mean, that's, that is the one thing that I'm assuming from your experience that if somebody has that deep down and they're withholding and they're hit hiding it, there's not much anybody can do. Cause you don't, you, you know, they're going to, we, I mean, <laughs> this is where it gets complicated, isn't it? That it's the whole, I'm trying to orient, I'm trying to help, but if I don't have the information and I'm not being told the information, I'm limited on what I can do. Well, I think, you know, it's it's such a difficult balance, Corey, because, which by the way, I didn't ask you, is it okay to call you Corey? Perfect, yes. Okay. It's such a difficult balance because on the one hand, there's a myth that if somebody's made up their mind to die by suicide, there's nothing we can do. And that's not true. I mean, we know that there have been pe- there are many people who have been so resolved to die by suicide that they've made a suicide attempt. And yet 90% of people who survive a suicide attempt are still alive even decades later. Okay. And there was a study where people were interviewed who had been stopped from jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. Same findings, 90% years later were had not died by suicide. So there are things we can do, but the, the balance that's difficult is I don't want to perpetuate the myth that there's nothing we can do. Thank you. But we yeah. also can't do everything. Per, that's a great distinction. And it's something I, I, it's another blog post of mine um, where I say, um, do everything you can, but know that you can't do everything. Okay. And so I would say the very first thing we can do, and that a lot of people don't because of the taboo and because of the fears, is to ask somebody directly, mm-hmm. you know, are you thinking of killing yourself? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it doesn't have to be. Hey, how are you doing? Are you thinking of killing yourself? I mean, <laughs> there can be a buildup to it. And, right. You know, and, and one of the ways could be, gosh, you know, a lot of people who joke about suicide, you know, say the person's been joking. Mm-hmm. A lot of people who joke about suicide, they're they're actually having suicidal thoughts. Have you been thinking of suicide? Mm-hmm. And and not many people get asked that directly. Like yeah, it and that have an effect. Yeah, that goes back to that idea of that this is such a scary thing that um, we could start seeing again. Fill in the gaps for me here, Stacy. That uh, some of the things that I look for and the people I live life with, uh, the clients that I have that come in and out over the years, um, particularly family members of somebody that could have major depression, suicidal ideation, some of these things that we're talking about today, is. When you see uh, a demonstrative change, that's a that's a sign. There's something. Something has shifted, right? Because a yes. normal, happy-go-lucky kid or spouse, and now all of a sudden, they're not. They're more withdrawn. They're more isolated. There's some behavior patterns that have changed, and then you couple that with the joking. Now, all of a sudden, I think there's a part of us as humans that I start seeing some of these that are scary, and... I want to look away. I don't, I don't want to face it. I don't want to really look at that tough path that they're in, let alone me alongside it and what it could do to me, impact me, 
you know, and that's, I think that's what starts to become the whole, I don't want to bring it up. I don't, maybe, maybe it's just a phase. Maybe we should just go on a vacation. Maybe, you know, we start, I do this when I get uncomfortable with other subjects at times where it's like, I just make a joke. I just want to lighten the mood, you know? (laughs) And it's like, okay, in the long run though, that's not serving those I care about or myself better. Whereas what you're describing is how do I find the courage of, hey, you know what? I've noticed some things that are different. Are they so bad that you're actually thinking of suicide and, and harm? And you know, that the, there's just that because that's all relational language then. It, it's really hard. I mean, there's so much about um, talking with somebody about suicide that has a lot of paradoxes. And one of the paradoxes that it can really help the other person, but it can also be incredibly frightening for you, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you may be afraid of being harmed. Like some people, they feel like, oh, if, if I ask them, then I'll get depressed, you know, like I'll get pulled into their despair or I'll, I won't know what to do. I mean, one of the biggest fears when I ask people what they're afraid of in terms of asking someone if they have suicidal thoughts one of the biggest fears is that the person says yes. Mm-hmm. And what a paradox, because we want the person to say yes if they are thinking of suicide. Right. And yet, <laughs> but we don't want to hear it. <laughs> exactly. And so then I have a whole chapter in my book on what I call brave listening. And, you know, it's not anything I made up. In, mm-hmm. in clinical literature, it's called active listening. Right. You know, but, um, but, I, I'm, I'm kind of using this different term because, first of all, active listening is very jargony. And second of all, because it really is, it really does require bravery, A, to ask what scares you to ask, and B, to listen to what's scary to hear. And it can be so scary to hear somebody talk about suicide. And I'm sure that you've witnessed this too. I'm not, tell me if I'm like, you know, Stacy explaining. Oh no! Well, look, but okay. This is this we this. All right, this is a good caveat. We need to at least insert here. Um, this is two professionals talking about a topic we are versed in. People that are listening are not. <laughs> so, so Stacy explain away. <laughs> <laughs> so well, um, what I was now I'm having to retrieve that thought. But what I was going to say is just that. People, when they get scared, they protect themselves, Mm -hmm. too. And so some ways they may protect themselves. Now I'm talking about the person who's asking about suicide. Mm -hmm. Um, So the ways they may protect themselves are to to say, it'll get better. You know, like if the person says, yes, I am having suicidal thoughts. You know, and these can all be well-intentioned. And they'll say, it can get better. Or they may say, how could you think of that? You have so much to live for. Right. And then they list off all the reasons a person shouldn't think of suicide. And then sometimes judgment can enter, you know, and they'll say things like, how could you think of hurting me like mm-hmm. that? You know, how could you think of hurting our kids like that? And again, they're well-intentioned. They want the person to mm-hmm. not attempt suicide. And yet those good intentions may not be received as such by the person who has suicidal thoughts. And that's the scary thing because they often aren't. And even let, let's let's move it just beyond the realm of suicidal uh, talk and ideation and plans to just uncomfortable things of life. Yes. That you know when I ask how things this is the this is the proverbial thing I use a lot as examples when I'm teaching or getting a chance to speak 
is the the politeness that takes place in civility, and particularly uh, in church settings sometimes, of the, hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm so great, when deep down, no, you're not, right? It's You've got all kinds of stuff that have maybe gone on, and you don't want to share it because the times you have, it hasn't been received well, or you don't want to, you know, so there's this facade of I want to be perceived a certain way, rather than, you know, if someone asks how you're doing and you're like, do you really want to know? There's an element of us as humans like, I don't know if I do. Um, I don't know if I got the amount of time or energy or the bandwidth or, and so the, the, the beauty I have of, of thinking of your work and how it can apply to more than just the specifics of your work is this brave listening means I'm getting in a hole with somebody that's scary and I don't necessarily have to have the way out for them, but I need to learn how to get in there to listen, to be, to be real, to, to let them know they're not alone, to let, you know, to give them something as far as a relationship that it provides, that it's not the ultimate answer right away, but it's love and it's care and it's presence Love, care, presence, empathy, an attempt to understand. And I would say curiosity, not, you know, not prurient curiosity, but staying curious and suspending judgment and trying to understand what's happening that makes the person feel that way. Yeah. So, and, and I totally agree with you. I mean, there are two things I want to say, well, maybe three, about what you said. And one is, um, we also see this with death that if somebody loses a loved one, people have a really hard time knowing what to say and how mm-hmm. to listen. And so some of the things that people will say, and again, with good intentions, they'll say things like, and, and I hope, I apologize if I'm offending anybody who has this religious orientation, but they'll say things like, God has a plan, uh-huh. or it happened for a reason. Don't apologize for that, because I think that's that's projecting our discomfort, not that, because yes. this is, all right, let me, co- let's add this caveat. Um, because I think, I think it's important. It's an important distinction. This is what I keep coming across with the spirit life and the religious life. Um, that when you, when you reach a struggle in life and you have even what we're talking about today with suicide and, and walking alongside somebody or even wrestling with it ourselves, maybe, um, oftentimes you hear the platitudes of, oh, you just need to pray more. And not that that's wrong. It's not enough though. Right? And it can be premature. It can shut down the conversation. Right. When, what we want is for people to open up. Right, because I think that's that element of I just shut it down by my discomfort of where this is going, and so I'm then feeling this helpless, so therefore I offer something because then I feel like I'm better because I at least offered something <laughs> rather than what maybe needs to be offered in that moment is just me. Even with the whole, I don't know what to do with what you just told me, but I want you to know you're not alone. Right. And, oh my gosh, that must be so hard. Mm-hmm. Sorry that you're going through that. You know? Okay. Tell me more. Yeah. And of course, you and I are therapists, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, and let's add that caveat too, because it's not like it's necessarily easy for us as humans to have these conversations too. Well, and I talk in, in my new book about... Um, you know, on the one hand, this can seem like, oh, you have to have a degree in counseling to be able to be that present with somebody. But on the other hand, 
they're, they're people who work in customer service are trained and have a listen. Mm-hmm. And people who are parents, they can read the book, How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't require an advanced degree. Right. And by the way, nothing against people who work in customer service. But what I mean is they don't have an advanced degree in psychotherapy. No, right, but they have learned how to relate to people and interact and hear and respond. And there, there's a huge difference of... Right. Of, of the importance that that can take. So before we run out of time with this segment, Stacey, um, so we're kind of setting up, I, I love the concept of the courage to at least ask the questions, to, to get specifics. If there's a family member, a spouse, a kid, uh, a relative of some sort that you're kind of seeing the signs, you're kind of getting the words, you're hearing the jokes, you're hearing the, the thought, it's being mentioned in passing, there's changes that have happened, um, so you ask the questions, is it, what's the next follow-up for them? I mean, obviously this is a huge, but I want to get one more step that we can offer up uh, from sure. your experience that a person can do that, that truly is beneficial and life-giving in the long run, hopefully. Sure. So um, I'm going to say two things. One is to listen and to try to, you know, n- not to immediately launch into an interrogation of, mm-hmm. Well, do you have a plan? Do you have the means? Do you, right. you know, when would you do this? But to, I mean, there's research that shows that a very powerful question can be, can you tell me the story of why? Or can you tell me yeah. the story of what happened to make you think of suicide? Yeah. You know, something that opens it up for the person to say in their own words what's happening. And then I think the other thing, so one thing is to listen and be receptive and you know, invite the person to say more. The other thing is there's this common stereotype in public that I've run into repeatedly that people think they need to call 911. Okay. And I would say, unless the person is truly on the verge of ending their life right now, like they've got a weapon in hand Mm -hmm. or they've already taken a substance to, you know, try to kill themselves, unless it's something urgent like that, then Calling nine one one can be a real uh, conversation stopper, right? And and it can harm the relationship because it's kind of shifting the the listening to somebody else saying, you know, I'm, and, and it's well intentioned. Again, people mm-hmm. are afraid, you know. But most people, I mean, every year in the United States, it's something like fourteen to fifteen million people have serious suicidal thoughts. And it's tragic. Mm-hmm. I don't want to understate this. It's mm-hmm. tragic that if almost 50,000 die. But it also means that 99.7% don't take their life. You know, 99.7% of people with serious suicidal thoughts don't take their life. Mm-hmm. And so calling 911 automatically can, it, can do damage. It's too reactionary is what you're describing. That it's like, hey, you, you can be a conduit for something first. Is what you're describing. That's that idea of the brave listening, the the good question. It's a follow up, and I'm I'm a proponent of everybody in the population. If we can learn good, just one good question that I can use in a lot of different situations can change the outcome of so many of them, because I've learned how to shift it back to the moment, or how to stay engaged, or even I mean, I've I've used this with people too. It's just the whole. I don't know what to do with that. But and you even added, but can you tell me more? 
right? Because there's that component of this is a relate. I'm a that is a pro relationship movement. Yeah, I want to understand. Right, because you're you're then demonstrating care, which is a lot of times I think what all of us as humans are desperately longing for. Is I just want to feel care. I want to feel cared for and connected. Exactly. And I also don't want to be naive and make it sound like that's all that's necessary. I mean, there are, you know, right. I'm, I'm always thinking in different from different angles and I want to be really careful, you know, somebody who's lost a loved one to suicide. It doesn't mean that they didn't listen. I mean, even if you, well, first of all, if they didn't listen, then they were doing the best they could with the information they had. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they were, you know, we live in a culture where listening in some ways is discouraged for the reasons we've said. But second of all, even if they did do everything that's recommended, suicide can still happen. And mm -hmm. that's because, you know, there are forces that we still don't understand that mm -hmm. are bigger than, than any one person. Okay. Well, Stacey, I want to, uh, before we transition into a, a little bit of a, a, a deeper conversation still, if we could even go deeper with this topic, with this topic, which I know we can, um, how can people find you and the work that you do? Because it's so important and vital to make sure everybody, uh, is equipped, particularly those that may be facing this. Cause maybe this is a show that they're listening to. And it's like, man, this is striking a chord. So how can they, how can they equip themselves? Well, thank you. I mean, the first thing I would say is I have a website, speakingofsuicide.com, and it has a lot of uh, articles for people all along the spectrum of those affected by suicidality, including people who have suicidal thoughts themselves, people who have a loved one who has suicidal thoughts, people who have lost somebody to suicide, people who have attempted suicide and survived, you know, different things mm -hmm. like that. So speaking of suicide.com is kind of my biggest site and labor of love. It's had like 6 million visitors since I created it. Good. And then I also have a site that has not had anywhere near that many visitors. And it's stacyfreedenthal.com. And that's S-T-A-C-E-Y-F-R-E-E-D-E-N-T-H-A-L.com. And that's just kind of like um, a place. And in fact, the site's being redesigned now, but it's a place where there's sort of a hub of information about my writings, my professional work, things like that. And I do use Twitter, much to my peril at times. <laughs> and um, my username on Twitter is S. Friedenthal. Okay. And I also have a professional Facebook account, which is Stacy Friedenthal, PhD, LCSW. And I think that probably covers it. Good. Well, all that will be in the show notes. Um, so if if you're hearing this today on the show and this is striking any level of chord or curiosity and concern, uh, go check out Stacy's work because it's incredibly valuable. So thank you so much for the time thus far, Stacy. Thank you. Well, after going through this now, babe, mm -hmm. this, this is one of those things because this is a different topic. It's, I don't think of these as one-offs though. I think we need to recognize yeah. um, what we try to do is a lot of the passionate side of things, but the flip side of what we think of as good when we think of the word passionate mm -hmm. is equally applicable in the sense that the dark, the grieving, the pain, the uncertainty, that's still an aspect of life. 
Yeah, all this is applicable. And, and I, I mean, you had said early in the show that this may not apply to everyone. I think this applies to a huge percentage of people. And, and right. on when you're talking about the depression in the dark, um, the, the dark side of where our minds go, mm-hmm. I think that this just applies to so many people that are listening. Mm-hmm. And my hope is that this uh, offers some comfort, some guidance, some help to realize we're able to walk alongside people if we can have the courage to get in and be involved Mm -hmm. and don't think we have to fix. Isn't that the key? We need to just be along. We need to be alongside, do what we can. What jumps to my mind is um, the the husband mastermind groups I do. There was a time years ago where one of the guys um, found a picture and this is something that went viral. I don't remember what year this was. This has been a while, maybe even over a decade ago. Um, but there was a man, and I believe it was overseas, I'm not quite sure where, but there was a man that was heading home from work, and he was in a really dark place, and he had to cross this really tall bridge, and he was climbed out on the outside of the rail and was going to jump um, that afternoon. And somebody walking alongside saw him and walked over and grabbed a hold of him, and then another guy walked over and grabbed a hold, and another guy grabbed a hold of a leg, and so they had pinned him against the railing until help could come and really talking through it, get him help, get him in a place to walk it through. And the only thing that, the way I think of this is, the guy that posted that said, that's what our group is. That's what Uh, our nation is. Yeah. Is where people that, we we maybe don't know what to say, but we can be alongside and hold on. Mm-hmm. And that's what this is really all about. Yeah. It's just, I'm there in the trenches and in the dark with you. Yeah. Because that's what makes an intimate marriage, which to me is also passionate. Mm-hmm. Well, transcripts are available for this conversation that we've had uh, on the show notes. So head to passionatelymarried.net and you'll find the transcript for the regular version of the show. Also, uh, our advertisers, deals, and discounts are available at passionatelymarried.net. So please consider supporting those who help support the show. Um, Thanks for waking it through all the way through if you're hearing this and for hanging out with us in this conversation. And blessings to you and yours. And we'll see you next time. Mm